And I want to thank everybody that's uh, ever been to our place and, and, and come by and supported what we do. Um, we literally, I, I have not, I have never felt so much love from a community. This has one, been one of the nicest in my over 30 years of being in the industry. This is one of the nicest places I've ever uh, got to share my products, uh, share my knowledge. I'm quite a wine geek. I can talk forever about wine um, and just feel the love from the community of people that have made our place a part of their lives. We, we, miss, we miss seeing you folks. Just be yeah. safe out there. Hello, and welcome to Old Spiral Podcast. Drew and I are excited to once again bring you a guest that makes downtown Clarkston the special place that it is, one glass or bottle of wine at a time. Mark Weisling from Pareja Cellars joins us to tell how he got into winemaking and the growing community of wine connoisseurs in the valley. Pareja supports local music and art, by hosting various events from live music to wine glass painting. Events at Parejas have been slowed down as of late, along with our announcements of what is happening this week around town. It is very interesting to hear how the shutdown has affected a local business owner and how the community has come forward to support our small businesses. As I'm sure you have heard by now, cases of COVID-19 are popping up in the valley. Old Spiral Podcast wishes everyone good health, and we hope to keep you entertained whether you're listening in quarantine or as an essential worker. Now, to the interview. Today, we're sitting with Mark Weisling. Mark Weisling is the owner and proprietor of Pareja Cellars in Clarkston, and you're also an adjunct professor for the Yakima Valley College uh, in Grandview for their winemaking program, right? Yes. Very cool. Uh, Drew and I, we, it was that three or four, when, when, did, when did we go into Pareja? I'd say it was three or four weeks ago. Yeah. I was there yeah. a couple weeks ago, but... That was your first time in there, correct? It was my first time in there. It was probably also my first time drinking a glass of wine, <laughs> which was very tasty. I had a white. I can't recall which one I had, but you gave us a taste of a couple different varieties, and they were both very good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I try to make yummy, affordable wines. So. Yeah. My guess was it was the Albarino. It's probably two of them, but I re- we were talking yesterday about the Albarino and yeah, I believe it was the Albarino you ended up liking out of the mm. two whites I tried, John. I had a white blend and then, of course, the Albarino. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Most people like the Albarino even though it's a dry wine. It seemed, uh, at least in my uneducated perspective of wine, it tasted a little bit more fruity, which mm-hmm. I liked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. the beautiful thing about that grape. It's, uh, it has a nice fruitiness to it. Yeah, it was mo- really good. Most people like, even if it's dry, people seem to like that wine. Sure. Yeah. And um, eventually... Old Spiral Podcast is going to have to get off 6th Street in Clarkston because <laughs> <laughs> we've done Greenfield and Hogan's, and you're right across the street from Hogan's. Yeah, right. Yeah. I am part so of we'll it. have to branch out at some point. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. But it's also <laughs> just a, a really cool place for business and industry in our area. And no, there joke. happens to be a lot of cool things there, like um, the arcade, for example, is another cool thing on 6th Street. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a neat little place. And 
I feel like Sixth Street and Clarkson is a good sort of time capsule of uh, downtown small small town America, mm-hmm. which is sure. which is another really cool thing about Sixth Street and Clarkson. Yeah. That was just my subtle way of letting everyone know where your business was located. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah. Well, how long uh, how long have you been? Uh, been in the Clarkson location. Um, we opened the tasting room June one of twenty eighteen. Hmm. In its current location. Is this your first tasting room that you've owned or opened, or have you helped open? What's what's your history with uh, tasting rooms? Um, so this is my first actual tasting room I've had for Pareja Cellars since opening it. Uh, I opened Pareja Cellars in two thousand seven. But I did wholesale to the Seattle market or Puget, greater Puget Sound area um, up until uh, June of 2018. I pulled out of Seattle and just now rely on the tasting room and uh, some wholesale up in the, uh, in the uh, um, Spokane area. Hmm. So what was it about this area that enticed you to move here? Um, well, I've been watching this area as a wine growing area for a while. I always, yeah. I always keep my uh, thumb on, you know, on, on, on what's going on in the industry around the state. Um, and, uh, what brought me here actually was I met a beautiful person. So Rebecca Doolittle, um, we met, uh, uh, quite a while back. And then I started looking at, you know, the whole, uh, tasting room thing because of the changes that were going on in the industry overall, um, wholesaling was becoming tougher and tougher to do, especially in the Seattle market due to a lot of changes in the, in the food chain, basically over there, as far as distributorship. Was there just a lot more competition or change in people's tastes or what, what, what was that? A lot more competition. Um, a couple of big distributors came into the Seattle area and offered their services. And I just can't compete with what bigger distributors can offer as far as uh, you know price point on the wines they're trying to distribute, um, as well as they have more people power than I do. You know, mm-hmm. being a big city, hard to get around. A lot. Of, I sold mostly to small restaurants. A lot of those small restaurants only wanted to buy a few bottles at a time. Right. You know, I was somebody that said, "Hey, I'm only here every two weeks." So, um, you know, the bigger the bigger distributors just had more people power to be able to do it and offer things at price points that I can't yeah compete with. And but with your tasting room, it's kind of a maybe. Is it a, just a smaller market out here? It's just more. Um, well, there's, you know, with, with, with the whole wine or with selling anything, there's wholesale and retail. Um, and I've, uh, when I first started my winery back in 2007, it was right when the recession, the other big catastrophe <laughs> right. we've had lately it was <laughs> yeah, starting, sure. you know, the great recession of 2008. Yeah. And, um, a lot of people weren't buying the directed to consumer thing kind of fell off the map because people were watching their money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to uh, selling to small restaurants because people still were going out to dine. And I've always found food and wine has always been, a you know, something I've always loved. That's how I got involved with wine was through, through, through food. Well, that's kind of where your name comes from, correct? So for everybody listening, Parejas, it's uh, Spanish origin? Yeah, Spanish origin. And what does that mean? It means pairs or partners in Spanish. And that came along from like food pairings and stuff. Yeah, Is that- yeah. I design all my wines to you know to pair or partner well with food, family, and friends. Hmm. Very That's cool. very cool. Yeah. So, what is it about this area, or I guess just Eastern Washington in general, that makes it particularly good for producing wine? Um, it's our climate. 
you know, we have the uh, heat units to do what we, we do here for, for wine grapes. Right? Wine grapes require a certain amount of heat, depending on the, on the, on the varietal mm-hmm. um, that you're trying to grow. And so Eastern Washington being a, <clears throat> what do they call it? It's the last of the, what the outreach of the High Plains deserts. Right. So in Eastern Washington, we're able to control irrigation really easily. Um, the soil types, uh, grapes like the soil types, we can control their vigor through what we call deficit irrigation. So, and, and due to the climate, it's also, there's a low um, degree of uh, uh, damage from pests. So we don't have a, you know, or we don't have a lot of like powdery mildew and bugs. Oh, because the, lower the humidity is low. Oh, yeah. pressure for the, the bugs. Yeah. The humidity is low. Um, we have a lot of sunshine, so that helps get rid of the, you know, the mildew. You still have to do a certain amount of spraying in vineyards to, you know, to keep that away. But grapes require very little spraying in a, in a good season, in a good growing season. So right now... Do you have most of your grape growing happening near Yakima? Yes. Yeah. Currently, um, when I moved over here, um, I didn't have any grape sources here in the valley. Um, and I wasn't really, that wasn't something I came here for, to look for grape sources. Uh, you know, cause I've been making wine in Washington State since 1987, all from Yakima Valley fruit for the most part. So I already have a great source of grapes. Most of the wineries here in the valley use grapes, whether some grown here and then also are using grapes throughout the Yakima Valley, Columbia Valley, which is the bigger Appalachian or AVA uh, that encompasses the whole area. Um, but this is an up-and-coming area that shows great promise. Is there So have you, uh, have you found any sources or are you, you're working on getting sources around here you were talking about? Yes, I actually had a gentleman has approached me. Um, we have some grapes being grown. He's growing some grapes out in the Lapway area. So I have an acre of cab in the ground out there that he put in in 2016. Gave me a little bit of crop last year. I made about 23 gallons of wine off of his place last year. This year we'll see a bigger crop. No, that reminds me. Drew has a great question. And can you just ask it now? Because <laughs> I remember it. And I saw this question. I just laughed. Uh, it is kind of a... Silly question, I it's guess. It's a good because, question. Because it's going to depend so much on so many different variables. But is there like a rough estimate of how many grapes or pounds it would take to produce a single bottle of wine? Yeah, let's say under perfect conditions, great yields. I just want to point out his question originally was how many grapes are in a bottle of wine? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is great. Many, it's a good question. That is a good question. Yeah. And, um, what do they say? I'm trying to think of that one. It just depends on the, you know, every grape varietal has uh, different size berries. Sure. You know, different size bunches on each plant. And I think I think it's around five pounds, maybe, plus mm. or minus, makes a bottle of wine. Okay. I'd have to look that one up again, but that sounds right in my head, right off the top of my head. Yeah. <laughs> sure. You know, so. Well, and that, like, again, as somebody that doesn't know very much about wine or winemaking, uh-huh. um, it, for me, it gives me a little bit of perspective into why the value is so high on wines just in that alone, not mm-hmm. not to mention the harvest, the time that it has to sit and age. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a lot of grapes. Well, and mm-hmm. the uh, the alcohol percentage is also like about twice of that of beer, if not a little more. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a give or take about 14%, I would say, yeah. in wine, and then depending, like, 5 to 7% in, in beer. 
Right. The yeah. average range. Yeah. 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 Most wines are in that 12 to 14% range between reds and whites. Whites usually lower alcohol percentage. Okay. Reds a higher alcohol percentage. Hmm. But... Yeah, I didn't mean to get us off track. We were, we were talking <laughs> no. about growing, uh, go, growing a cab near uh, Lapway, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So uh, this gentleman uh, Kelly has put a vineyard in out there. He's had some family property for a long time. Just started looking into it. He's getting ready to retire from uh, in here in the area, and so he just took a chance, put in an acre of cab. It's doing well. And then uh, last year we put in an acre of Albarino. So actually, we'll see that Spanish Portuguese white grape here. We should see a, hard, a crop off of that next year, if this is a good growing season. Um, they grew well last year. The plants we put in the ground, he got really good growth out of them. So they have a strong root system for sure going. And then this year, uh, we'll prune them back down to their original you know root system and let a nice shoot come up and train them up and hopefully have them trained to the vine or to the wire. Excuse me, the vine to the wire this season. And then next year, we'll see. Should see uh, you know couple of tons off of that oh wow that vineyard so is that particular variety more specialty or uncommon um in the world of wines Albarino. Uh, yeah yeah Albarino is a a newer grape varietal especially to washington state it's probably only been here not even 10 years yet Mm -hmm. so it's a new white wine that's just uh, it actually came to this uh to this country via virginia virginia Hmm. was the first place they actually had uh, some commercial plantings and then a gentleman down in uh, Oregon brought it out, and he's had it probably at least for the last 10 years uh, down in southern Oregon. He's growing uh, Albarino. That was probably the original West Coast planting of it. But it's starting to take off. It's a very unique varietal. I'd say it's the best varietal out of Spain or Portugal. I really enjoy have. I really enjoy that type of wine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Albarino makes a beautiful wine. Yeah, I've been really impressed with that grape. Same what what uh, qualities about it make it so desirable? Um, me as a, as a winemaker, um, it is one of the few varietals that I've worked with over my long time here in Washington making wine, um, that actually retains nice natural acidity Mm, and develops nice, all its flavors at a, at a, actually a lower sugar level than, than most other whites do. And I think it has the best qualities of three grapes, Pinot Gris, uh, Riesling and Sauvignon Blanc basically all rolled into one but it has more uh like body it has a really nice body and a really nice mouthfeel Mm -hmm. and with that nice natural acidity it has um that just makes it really pop in your mouth and goes great with lots of foods or just on its own very nice summer wine Hmm. i've got another sort of tangent question to ask you while i'm on (laughs) on while we're on this track um what what is it about a wine that qualifies it as a natural wine because i see so many of these like Michelin star restaurants and stuff that are all about natural wines. Is there any sort of difference there in the dichotomy of other wines comparatively? Well, yeah, the the whole natural wine movement is something that's just really come into play. Natural wine's been made for for many years. It's kind of a broad definition. Uh, right now, natural wines are usually wines that are basically that are taking grapes straight from the vineyard, and they're doing minimal intervention in the in the winery with them. So they're pretty much bringing them in, crushing them if they're making a white and maybe pressing off the juice to make the white, but letting like natural yeast take over. They're not adding any sulfites. They're usually not making any kind of uh, um, uh, science changes to the wine, like uh, adding some acidity back to it if it needs some acid. They're usually just doing it as is from the wine. That's the whole natural wine movement. Mm. And then they 
pretty much bottle them sooner than later. They're not things that are really designed to be aged per se. Okay. Uh, they're more drink sooner than later. Um, they're usually unfiltering them, bottling yeah. them straight. So it's more, it's not like as much of an artisanal or craftsman style approach to making wine. It seems it's just kind of letting things be on their own and then. Yeah. It's a low intervention wine style. So basically. does that leave a lot of variance from bottle to bottle? Like if you drank it this year versus the year prior, is it going to taste wildly different in some cases? Probably. Mm. More than likely. It'll depend on what yeast, natural yeast kicks off. It'll, the Every year, you know, being a smaller wine producer, when you make smaller lots like I do, especially from a single block of grapes, um, every year Mother Nature can change sure. that, you know, the dynamics of what you're going to get out of that out of that bottling because you're not you're not using you're not doing big blending to try and create a consistent you're trying to create something that's unique for every year and every year mother nature throws you a curveball as far as things a lot of times you'll end up with the same flavor profile overall but each year you might end up with maybe one year a little lower in alcohol you know due to the weather or maybe a little higher in alcohol or your acidity can change depending on the weather Every year. Well, that, um, that kind of makes me think of the people who, you know, say, oh, it's, it's this year from this vineyard. It was such a great year. Mm-hmm. That type of thing. That's probably where that comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Some years are better. Some years are more balanced. You know, like 2015 was our warmest year ever in the history of Washington State. And so we got really big, lush wines, you know, a lot bigger alcohols, a lot less acidity. The warmer the climate is the, that a great variety is grown in, the, the less acidity it, it has it by the time it's ready to be picked and you know harvested for, for fermentation. Um, so that can change. Uh, 20, 2016 was a much more elegant year. Um, actually, uh, the last couple of years, 2018 and 19, have been very beautiful. More bal- I call them more balanced years. Um, the fruit that I worked with was, was just naturally more balanced. I didn't have to do much with it scientifically uh, you know, from a laboratory perspective point of view uh, in the in, in, in the in, before I fermented it mm. so I kind of have a maybe it's a there two questions where they're really connected have is there a big difference between growing in Yakima and kind of growing in this area and then the second part to that I suppose is uh, I guess it would depend you would grow do you grow different grapes in Yakima than you grow over here do they grow differently um, currently, you know, there's what, a hundred acres grown here that are producing. Um, they're growing all the major varietals here that, that we grow in the Yakima Valley. So things like Cab, Merlot, Syrah, Tempranillo, um, and there's, you know, whites, there's a little Chardonnay grown here. There's not a lot as many whites grown here as much. Um, people have a tendency to grow more reds than whites out there because people drink more reds than whites. Um, our growing season here is a little shorter. Because we're more eastern and a little more northern than the Yakima Valley. Yeah, I guess it kind of depends on altitude, topography, and sunlight. Yes, yeah. Each grape variety, the the trick to achieving the the, the best potential you can get out of a grape variety um, is where you grow it. So there's things they're growing. What they're growing here now are all showing well and all you know growing well here. I don't think there's a real signature grape coming out of this area, other than I, I really like uh, Syrah and Tempranillo that I've tasted from here. And those each grape variety ripens at a different stage. So you have some grape varieties that ripen early, and that would, examples of that would be like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Then you have exa- grapes that ripen kind of mid ripening in the season and that would be things like Syrah, Merlot, 
Those are mid, mid ripeners, basically. Tempranillo is another one in there like that. And then you get later ripeners, which are harder to grow here because our season comes to an end sooner than it does in the Yakima Valley. You know, the Yakima Valley gets really nice, what they classify as what they call Indian summers. Mm-hmm. So you get those nice falls, you know, you get that nice warm weather throughout September and sometimes even into October, we get really nice weather. But things like Cabernet, um, Sangiovese, you know, Petit Verdot, those kind of grape varieties are more late ripeners. And so those are, you know, if we get a cold snap like we did this last year in 2019, it was hard. We went basically from summer to winter. We didn't get much fall last year. So I know a third of the grapes I usually work with, we didn't pick last year because the growing season came short real quickly. I had to reject reject, uh, at least a third of the fruit I normally work with last year because it didn't ripen properly. Wow. Or adequately enough to make a a decent wine out of. You can only do so much with underripe fruit, you know, in the cellar. Well, while we're on the more technical aspects of it, how did you get involved in in becoming a professor and teaching about wine and winemaking? And you have a certification program, right? Yes, yeah. Our uh, so our wine program started back in two thousand seven at Yakima Valley. Uh, it was called Yakima Valley Community College at that time. Uh, you know, most community colleges <laughs> have dropped the community part now. They're just calling themselves college, so we're just Yakima Valley College. But we started a winemaking and, and viticulture program or grape growing. And winemaking, you'll hear the term what enology a lot. That's used for the winemaking side of it. Um, and um, I got involved with the program to help get it off the ground back in 2007. I was asked to, to be, uh, we have two incubators built into the program. And the main instructor uh, asked me to, offered me the first chance at one of those incubators because uh, I had been approached by the college back in 2004 to start something like this due to I was, I was running a, uh, a, a custom processing facility up in Yakima where I was making wine for about 10 different people and they were utilizing me for a, uh, uh, for on hands, you know, on hands experience, uh, work study. And that part of the program went away. Um, the guy running it, it just didn't, uh, we, um, that's okay. Yeah. We lost, <laughs> we yeah. lost that program because he was an instructor. Uh, I, I just didn't, didn't pan out for that. And so they rebooted the program in 2007 and then I got brought on board to help facilitate that. Is that where most of your or all of your wine is processed for Parejas? Yes. Yeah. Currently, I still process all my wine. I rent and or lease one of the incubator spaces. And so my position at the college evolved into offering work-study experience into now I help teach some uh, short courses for people already involved in the business. We're doing some seller, seller worker. Yeah, you uh, were telling me that wine winemakers or wineries will send people – to your program to get certified. Yeah, yeah, we've started a program to help these, these. Uh, so the people they send me are people that are working for bigger wineries that probably are kind of like, uh, you know, they man a team of people, so they'd be the lead for a team of people. They're sending me these leaders, and I'm making sure they understand the whole from vineyard to bottling process. That's my part of what I teach them, to help them give them the, the bigger picture so that they know that if they get why they're doing what they're doing is what it does and why they're doing it. Also, it helps them recognize that um, if they see ways they could do it better, how to uh, take those and collect the data on that and how to push it upstream so that they can make the process better for the overall for the facility. Mm-hmm. Or that we're also helping them to recognize if they see a work order that doesn't look good, 
they can say, oh, this isn't the right math that's been done on this. You know, there's, you know, this, this just, I will not, you know, I won't start this process because this doesn't look correct. And ways to help them talk to their management team above them. So could you give sort of a rough outline of what it looks like from farm to table in the winemaking process? Rough outline, farm to table. Well, uh, the natural wine movement helps with that a lot. You know, you're basically, uh, you, you, you get the grapes to the level of ripeness you want to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, you bring those grapes in. Um, you're making white wine. You're, you know, there's a different path to choose for white wine making than red wine making. Because uh, with white wine, you're you know, usually making it without the skins and the seeds. Hmm. Whereas with red wine, you're crushing it all together in a fermenter and fermenting it at a much higher temperature. Compared to white wine, you usually want to ferment at a lower, cooler temperature. Usually in the 50s, you're fermenting white wine so you, you can retain their fruity esters, we call that. Um, and that helps give more character to that because you're working with just the juice with whites mostly. There is a new movement, especially in that natural wine movement now. People are making what, making what they call orange wines, and those have been made for centuries, many, many years. A lot of old world countries still do this. We're doing it here in America too, but it's basically making a white wine that's been fermented on the skins, just like making a red wine. And why, why do they call it an orange wine? Because the, the color of the wine ends up usually being, because it's a white grape, there's no red pigmentation in there. So you're getting more of an orange hue or a dark yellow hue usually comes to these wines as you're fermenting them on the skins. Okay. Well, and we've, we've got a lot of home brewers around this area, Brian mm-hmm. being an excellent home brewer himself. Um, is it, a reasonable idea for somebody to be like an at-home winemaker? Is it is it too complicated? Would it be too difficult? No, there's lots of people. I mean, that's how I started. I'm basically this is just a hobby that got out of hand for me. Okay, and I just have more science behind me. You know, what I mean, and I and I love to cook. Winemaking is like a form of cooking. Um, once you understand the processing, if you have the proper equipment, you know, commercial winemaking is another level. You're working with bigger quantities um, and bigger batches, but. Yeah, no, home winemaking is totally achievable by anybody. It's just there is a science and art to the whole thing of it. Uh, but it all starts in the vineyard. So as long as you're getting sound quality grapes, you should be able to make sound quality wines at home. Hmm. You just, you know, sterility, uh, sterile technique is a big, is a, an important part of it. Yeah. As, in, as in beer making, you know, and all these, any of these kind of fermentation processes. It all starts with the quality or the ingredients you have. Uh, the person knowing what he's doing with those 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 things each step of the way because there's different steps you have to do different things and then uh, keeping a sterile field to get it because it is a food so it's basically a food processing so you want a nice sterile technique through all the way to the bottle yeah and if you're not sterile and you do get any sort of bacterial growth you can usually taste it and it usually doesn't taste good. <laughs> yeah, taste it and or smell it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So reds, you keep the whole grape during fermentation yes but whites generally you don't Mm -hmm. and then you're adding your own yeast you said with the natural wine movement Mm -hmm. they're letting just whatever yeast is carried in through the wind yes to settle on the grapes and that's what's doing the fermentation but as we know from talking to pete and doing our homebrewing episode Mm -hmm. yeast is a huge factor in determining how something's going to taste yeah 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 uh so you were telling me something funny. We were talking about winemaking when I was uh, there the other weekend, mm-hmm. and you're saying you have to go in and mix it up because it foams. And we were looking at pictures on your Facebook of oh. this overflowing red wine yes. <laughs> fermentation yes. trough. Yeah. 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 So then you have to go through and mix that up? Yeah, two or three times a day. They call it punch down. 
Oh, it's and, two or three times a day. Two or three times a day. Yeah, usually ultimate. Uh, uh, yeah, well, you really want to do it about every eight hours, eight to twelve hours. Everybody has their own style. It's all, that all comes down to stylistics again, and how much you want to extract or not extract when you're making red wine. But yeah, you have to. Um, you know, with reds, you 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 run them through a machine called a distemmer crusher, which removes the stems. But a lot of people include portions of stems too. If you want more tannic structure in a wine, you include some stems. Um, uh, and then you, the grapes are slightly crushed. They fall in, fall into the fermenter. They'll take off. You know, one of the byproducts of, C, uh, of, of, of fermentation is CO2. So the CO2 gets underneath all those skins that are in there that you're trying to ferment with and it pushes it up to the surface and forms with a dry cap. So you, but you don't want that dry cap. You want to submerge that dry cap and break it up because that's where all your flavonoids and color are going to come from. And so you have to do that two or three times a day. Otherwise, this cap will just come to the surface and anything underneath that cap will uh, just be more of a rosé you'll end up with. You might get some darkness, but you're not going to get what you really want in structure and flavors if you don't, you know, stir that back in, they call that, basically. It's a stir-down technique. Speaking of CO2 buildup, you were telling me it was not uncommon mm-hmm. for, for uh, people working near these fermentation tanks to pass out from the CO2. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's oh, a wow. huge thing in the industry, especially bigger, larger wineries. Uh-huh. You know, like in our winery, we have a, a ventilation system that's running, an exhaust ventilation system that's running continuously, uh, more so at harvest time because we have CO2 detectors on all, on all our uh, on the system. And so it knows how to purge that out of the facility. But, yeah, most big wineries, a big tank of wine could take you down quickly because, you know, you're breathing CO2 instead of oxygen. And you'll pass out and die in that kind of environment if you stay in there too long. So, or fall into the wine. Or fall into the vat. Yeah, people <laughs> yeah. people every year in different countries end up falling into their vats of wine, you know, and passing out and expiring because it's hmm. very dangerous, especially the larger the vessel that you're fermenting, of course, the more CO2 you're going to have. Wow. So, yeah, I wonder how they avoided that. Um, in times before ventilation, and I guess they just had open they air facilities. They probably figured it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, get, yeah. you get too many cellar workers going down. You're yeah. like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just open the doors. Yeah. So what? What are tannins? What What is a tannin? What What does that add to a wine? Oh, okay. So tannins. Tannins. The best example of tannins for tea, uh, right? Yeah. Steeping a tea bag too yeah. long. If you make black tea, mm-hmm. just take black tea, steep it in, uh, steep it in like ten minutes in a cup. Uh, uh, take it out and then sip it without putting any creamer or sugar in it. And that astringency you feel on your teeth, you'll feel it right on the front of your teeth. Those are tannins. Um, and wine grapes have a lot of tannins uh, in, the, uh, in their seeds and in the skins, but mostly it comes from the seeds and it gets extracted out through fermentation. So, and the tannins give uh, red wine structure and part of their character, but that structure helps with the wines, uh, red wine, especially a red wine's ageability. But also you have to tame those tannins and you have to pick the grapes at the level where the tannins are ripe too because underripe tannins are not good in a wine. They can be so astringent. Um, that's what can give you some of that kind of you taste a wine that tastes like green bell peppers. Hmm. Um, that's underripe tannin structure in a wine. Hmm. Okay, so I have a question for you as somebody that's totally uneducated about wines again. If if you wanted to start getting into being like an amateur wine connoisseur, what what varieties of whites and reds would you recommend for somebody to try to go pick up off the shelf? Or where does someone who wants to do home where do you get grapes? 
Um, you can reach out to, um, there's a lot of people that sell grapes. There's a lot of commercial vineyards and guys with bigger home vineyards that will sell grapes to you. They usually sell them by the pounds. You know, I'm buying as a commercial winery, I'm buying wines by the ton, you know, mm-hmm. grapes by the ton. You know, I usually contract my, uh, acreages, uh, it's usually a half acre to an acre and we go by the ton off of that. And I get, you know, two to three tons, two to four tons of the acre off of the stuff I work with. Whereas most home makers, home wine makers just buy by the, you know, the pounds. Yeah, and it sounds like it'd be a little easier for somebody starting off at home to do a red because you don't have to worry about removing the skins and stems and stuff. But maybe that's not difficult. Um, well, you have to have the right equipment to start with. You can, you know, you you need a destemmer crusher, something to remove the stems from the from the berries. That's the first thing, red or white, you'll need that. Um, then you'll need a wine press to be able to separate. You know, if you're making a red wine, you ferment it on all those skins and seeds. And then at the end of fermentation, you're going to want to separate it. So you need a wine press. Uh, if you're making white wine, you just throw, you can throw the whole clusters into the wine press and press it off. Home winemakers usually, because of the smallness, because of the type of wine press you're using, little basket presses, um, usually you'll want to crush the, the, the whites first because you'll get better yield out of it you know better volume will come from that instead of just trying to do the whole berries Hmm. whereas with my commercial equipment when i make white wine i dump the whole clusters into my wine press but i have a two-ton wine press that holds at least two tons and it has a big bladder in it it's kind of like an airbag in a car so it pushes from one side solid pushes it against the screen side and i can get better extraction of juice with that system Hmm. but yeah i think we kind of asked a similar question to pete that, that Drew asked, which was, we asked Pete, you know, what's a good home brew to start with? And he sure. said a stout, because mm-hmm. it's kind of easier if you mess up and mm-hmm. kind of hide those flavors. But yeah, what kind of grapes and what kind of variety of wine would you suggest for a first or second time winemaker? Well, uh, you know, the four main grapes that people know that the, that the big guys have pushed down our throats for many years are Cab, Merlot, of course, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. So the Cab and Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot are two reds that are really, you know, what most people start with. Those are a dominant grapes that people like only because those have been made dominant. There's many other grapes out there. And then, of course, there's lots of Chardonnay grown and usually lots of Sauvignon Blanc. And those are two of the main whites that most people like in America. Um, you know, whites, I'm not saying whites, 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 you, you know, if you can do some temperature control on whites, that helps you retain their fruitiness uh, and you can ferment them if you don't have any temperature control. Um, there's a little more processing. I don't know. It's a trade off with processing, you know, to get the juice out of the whites. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of people are choosing to make these orange wines now. You can actually make these and, um, you know, like you're making your reds. But those grapes you can find real easily out there. Okay. Some of the more, uh, you know, um, not as common varieties like, oops, excuse me, um, that uh, are like Albarino. You don't, there's not a lot of Albarino grown in the state. You know, some of these lesser known varietals. So home winemakers might have a harder time finding those kind of grapes to work with. Yeah, Yeah. I guess you're limited to what's around you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my my question was a little bit different in that I'm just wondering if you're not wanting to do the winemaking process mm-hmm. yourself at home, mm-hmm. if I wanted to come into Preos and mm-hmm. like start my own little collection of wines at home right. for reds and whites, which ones would you recommend for somebody that's a novice to wine? Well, uh, they're like I said before, the 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 Cabernet, Sauvignon, Merlot, Sauvignon Blanc, a white, and then of course Chardonnay, a white. Those are the four common grapes that most people learn or cut mm-hmm. their teeth on with wine as far as learn wine. 
sweeter people, you know, people like more sweet wines. People usually start with sweet wines. So people are usually drinking Rieslings or Moscato or Prosecco seems they're real, you know, people are really, those are very popular these days. Um, but have wine with food. You know, usually I always recommend people have your wine with food. That's how you learn how to like wines and start with the basic varieties. If you're just getting into it, you know, you can, buy, you can find lots of Cab, Merlot, Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc at many price points. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to break the bank, you know, learning from those four main, spe- you know, varietals. Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio is another one that's uh, very popular in the whites out there these days that you can find very readily in supermarkets. Hmm. Do yeah. you uh, do you have wine at Pareja or wine? Do you have wine at Parejas? <laughs> do you have foods at at Parejas or do you re- what kind of foods do you recommend people would bring in uh, to to pair with your wines? Um, well, we always recommend people have something to you know to snack on while enjoying wines. Uh, and so at our place, we offer a couple of basic uh, appetizer plates. We have a hummus plate, um, and then we have a meat and cheese plate. Um, but we always recommend people bringing in their own foods. You know, you can bring your own picnic to our place anytime, anything you want. Um, Hogan's has been real kind to us. They'll cook up anything off their menu for people at our place. Uh, people order in all the time or they just bring their own versions of meat and cheese and olives and crackers and dips. You know, hummus is a great thing to go with wine. Um, almonds, you know, and nuts. Nuts are wonderful to have with wine. But it's always nice when you're enjoying wine with family and friends, especially if you're enjoying more than a glass of wine, to have some food with it. Yeah, it's generally a, not a smart idea to drink wine on an empty stomach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or anything, for that matter, I suppose. Yeah. So what are a couple good classic pairings for someone who doesn't know? Because you typically are going with lighter stuff Here's with what whites, I know. right? And mm-hmm. heavier stuff with reds. Fish, fish, white, mm-hmm. steak, steak, red. red. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's all I got. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's pretty much what I know. Well, there you go. You please, got the basics please, down. Yeah, can you, yeah. Can you make me a little smarter? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, wine being a food product, I, I always tell people, have what you want with what you want. There are some old school rules like the fish thing. Fish, you know, have white wine with fish. You know, any kind of uh, red meat usually goes great better with a, a yeah. with a red wine. And of course, there are tons of different whites and there are tons of different reds. Yep. So it's yep. real basic. Yeah, yeah. So basically, you find something. I mean, I have some. Uh, there are some whites that go to me go better with things like pork. I make a, a, a white blend. I think is wonderful wine to have anything, any pork dish you can throw at it. it goes great with it. You know, chicken. A lot of chicken dishes go great with. I think go great with certain whites more than they go with reds. But it also comes down depending on what your seasoning is. A lot of times it's the seasoning. You know, like if you're having chicken or pork in some kind of a red sauce, well, you could probably get away with a nice red that would go with that. It's all. It's all about finding what you want to go with what you want. Yeah, you know, that there makes are, sense. There are some old school rules out there, which are good guidelines, but that doesn't mean you have to totally go by those guidelines. I always tell people, have what you want with what you want, as far as food and wine pairings go. Um, those are the classics, though, those two, um, that you know we just were talking about with fish. But there are certain fish dishes, like with salmon, I love a nice lighter red to go with salmon. I think that goes much better than any white wine with salmon. So I have a, a little grape, uh, I play with a little French grape called Sanso. At, the, at, at Parejas. Yeah, I make a 100% varietal Sanso. It's one of the best wines to have with grilled, you know, barbecued salmon hmm. out there. Better than any, I can't find any white wine that I would like with grilled salmon. You know. So we can come pick up a bottle of that at Parejas, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's a varietal that I play with. And we do grow a little bit of it here in the, in the valley. 
All right, we'll have to come snag some of that. I'm pretty that avid fisherman, awesome. so mm-hmm. that'd be cool to check it. We go catch some salmon, go get some sanso. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Cool. Yeah. So, can we can we buy your wine anywhere other than the tasting room? Um, currently in this area, no. Um, I've never been a really a uh, a wine you'd find in grocery stores. Even though uh, after moving here, I found in especially in Idaho, most wines are sold in grocery stores. You know, you don't see very many wine shops as much. You know, in in the state of Idaho as compared to like Washington. Um, Why is that? It's just the demographics. Yeah. You know, of the area. The wine culture hasn't fully hit here yet. Yeah, it's still very young here. Yeah. You know, this is an up and coming wine region. Yeah. Um, and then people in the industry, and, have been, and, and there are people that have been following our little industry here for quite a while. Um, you know, they're in the know, but the general public don't. You know, I mean, the number I was recently told the number one drink here in the LC Valley is Keystone Light. Oh, you know? d- yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, I can see that for you know? sure. Beer in general, people seem to consume more beer in general than wine. Um, that is changing. The demographics now are changing a lot. These new uh, hard seltzers and stuff have really taken a. They're one of the hottest growing parts of the of the uh, you know of the market out there, especially in the millennial crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really really hot. Anything in a can seems to be a hot item these days. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and they put wine in cans. Oh yeah, as well, wines right? in cans. Yeah. I recently did that for a friend's wine. We put a red wine in a can. And he's having some good success with that, but yeah, a lot of the a lot of people are using the can the can can part of it now. Hmm. Alternative packaging, right? Yeah, yeah, a little bit easier to recycle, I guess. Yeah, or go go anywhere with you can take a right. can anywhere, not worry about glass. You know? Yeah, yeah, you can stomp it afterward. You've got a nice compressed you know garbage package you can hike out with. Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of these things in the can, or uh, especially like these hard seltzers, they're not very high alcohol. You're looking at less than most beers, you know, five percent or less. A lot of these things. Hmm. Yeah. So I have another bit of a tangent question. Mm-hmm. What exactly is a rosé? Is that sort of a combination of the two? No, actually, a rosé is a style of wine. Yeah. So you have you know red, white, and rosé. Um, there's different ways to make rosés. You can take a, a, some white wine and add a little bit of red wine to it and make a rosé. That is a legal way to make a rosé. Traditionally, rosés, though, are made from red grapes, whether they be one kind or sometimes people use multiple kinds that they've used for years that have been proven in other places of the world that make great rosés. Um, but basically, you're taking a red wine, uh, leaving it in skin contact, for a very short period of time, maybe just a couple of hours or up to maybe overnight. Then you press it off. You basically crush it like you're going to make a red. And then you press it off like a white wine after that and treat it like a white wine and ferment it at a cooler temperature. Hmm. But they're, they're really nice wines. Most rosés can age like whites. Um, a lot of them are designed to be drunk sooner than later. Like mm-hmm. most white wines are designed to be drunk sooner than later. But, but they can age. If they're designed to be, a, you can get some nice ageable whites and or rosés out there too that can take, that will live easily five years in a bottle before you have to drink it. Well, I suppose that could be a common misconception too. Not all wines are better aged. Right. Yeah. Most wines are designed today, the current market. Most people want something they can drink upon release. Well, and now you is know? that something, if I went into the store, I mean, I don't know which wines are supposed to age and which ones aren't. Is it like a grape varietal thing or does it kind of vary depending on who's making what? Well, yeah. the time, too, is what I've always been curious about, too, because you hear about certain years having a better vintage. But, I mean, could you pick up a bottle that's like 
seven years old compared to 10 or 15 or two? Or what is the difference there? Yeah, again, that comes down to usually the producer mm-hmm. and how they're producing the wine. So you can, you can produce wines to be drinkable sooner than later. You know, more market ready. There's a way to make wines not so extracted, not so heavy in tannins when it comes to red wines. You know, most white wines designed to be drunk upon release. You know, there are some great whites that get better with age. You know, I mean, I've had some, you know, like Rieslings, German, most German Rieslings aren't fun to drink until they're about 10 years old because there's just a change that goes on in that bottle with them. Uh, Most reds like some bottle age, unless they're really cheap. The cheaper the wine, the more likely it's like better to drink it sooner than later. Hmm. And what's going on in that process that are you adding preservatives or what's what's kind of the difference between a wine that is ready to go now and a wine that's going to be ready in 10 years? A lot of that's the processing and the source of the grapes. So, um, you know, grape, even in wine, wine industry, grapes are grown for quality and then there's grapes that are grown for quantity. Hmm. And it's those grapes that are grown for quantity and then just stylistically how they're making them. They're extracting them less. They're, they're, they're you know, usually not extracting, trying to extract as much as they can from them. They're usually made from grapes that are grown in quantity, so they're making a fruitier style of wine. Um, and then if you're making an age-worthy wine, like a lot of Cabernet, Cabernet has a lot of tannins just naturally. Um, and so when you make Cabernet, it's time in the barrel that mellows out those tannins from the grapes. And then time in the bottle it gets it to mellow, helps it you know uh, mellow out even more. Um, so a lot of it comes down to how the wine is made initially. But usually cheaper cheaper wines, you know, the, the wines that are ten dollars and under, say, a lot of those are designed to be drunk as soon as you get them home. Mm-hmm. And most people drink. The, the statistics show most people drink it if they buy a bottle of wine, it's drunk within the first two weeks of getting it home. Hmm. So the industry has had to. You know, the old ways of processing used to make heavier, more extracted wines. Extraction meaning probably a lot of tannins. Um, We have figured out how to make wines very smooth and polished. The factory wineries can be very consistent from year to year on making these more higher production wines. They didn't design them to be ageable. They have some ageability when they first come out the door, especially reds. Most of these cheaper reds that come out, you know, they're probably good for a year or two, and then they're not going to be so good. They're not going to get any better, let's say. They're about as good as they're going to get in the bottle. But then there's other wines that, like you say, if you make a big tannic Cabernet, they need time in barrel, so usually a couple years in a barrel, and then usually a couple years in a bottle before they really start to show you know, their best colors, their best flavors. So can you, in the aging process, mm-hmm. let's say like with a bottle of scotch or whiskey, you can open it up, pour yourself a little drink and then put it back on the shelf. Could you do that necessarily with a bottle of wine if you were aging it, let's say, and you wanted to have a glass now and then one, two years later, could you do that or would it sort of ruin it after you've opened it? Yeah, once you uh, take, take out the cork or the screw cap, uh, oxidation starts. It's like mm-hmm. opening up any any food process. You know, oxidation immediately kicks in as soon as you take that barrier away. And so most wines, when you open a bottle of wine, they're good for two or three days after you open them. Even if you're using some way to sparge the, the, the oxygen that's going in after you open it. You can get some preservative systems that can help with that. Um, that's the only way you're going to be able, be able to do that. They do make a couple of, there's a couple of unique systems out there that give you longer time to, to enjoy a bottle of wine. There's a company called uh, Coravan. If you Google Coravan, you can find it on Amazon. Um, it's a unique device that goes on the top of your bottle. It has a special uh, surgical needle that you basically push down through the cork 
whether it be a synthetic or, uh, or an artificial or a natural cork, you extract the wine you want, then you pull the needle back out. In theory, that that channel seals back up, especially in a natural cork, and a little bit of argon is used to push that wine out that you want dispensed out through that system. And that's a way to it. I have a friend who has a wine shop, or excuse me, a, a wine bar in Seattle. He offers 150 wines by the glass. He uses uh, uh, this system to be able to offer people that. Hmm. But that's the only way. Is you, if you, you have to replace that oxygen after you open that bottle, you have to replace that oxygen you know, after you pour a glass out, you have to replace that with some kind of inert gas in yeah. there if you want any shelf life after it. So it, was, uh, it sounds like cork is pretty important to the, the process also of bottling. Like cork is really important to me as a fisherman because mm-hmm. so many handles are made of cork. So is there different, like you said, is there a, a bunch of different varieties of cork that people use or one that's more sought after to bottle with? Uh, there is. You know, the corks, corks are used for many things like, you know, the handles on your, on your fishing poles. It's used in a lot of shoes, you know, more high-end shoes use a cork bedding in them still. Um, cork floorings, very, you know, you see cork flooring now, cork wall stuff. Um, the cork for wine grapes is extract is a different, you know, it's usually, usually those are made from regr- uh, what they call ground up cork and they put it back together, those kind of products. You know, wine corks come from a, you know, they're the first thing that when they peel the cork off a tree, it's a tree, they actually peel the bark off. Right. And that bark gets stamped out into wine corks. Um, you know, that industry is very, it's just very old traditional closure that still has its pros and cons. You know, most people still use cork, especially higher end wines. You'll see under natural cork, uh, the screw cap has made a big road in. I've, I've switched to pretty much all screw caps for the most part in my wines. And we've, uh, we've got over 50 years of research showing that actually screw cap is the best thing to seal almost any beverage product under, mm. uh, especially wine. They actually make liners now for uh, that we use in the screw caps that actually let a little bit of oxygen into the bottle like the natural cork does, but at a, at a much more controlled oxygen rate. Every batch of cork acts differently. Every batch of cork has a different what they call oxygen transfer rate um, through the cork into the product inside, which actually helps the wine age, but also can actually shorten the life of it hmm. too. You know, if the wine's not designed to be ageable, that cork can be a detriment to it. Um, whereas a screw cap makes a nice natural barrier that'll actually keep a wine safer, longer, and then does something after you're replaced. You know, most corks, like the people that collect wines and age old, old wines, most corks have to be replaced after 20 years. No matter how well you store it on its side, upside down, you got to keep it wet all the time. Because they'll, they'll just start letting in too much oxygen. Yeah, they start to deteriorate. You know, the moisture from the wine up against on the wine end of it on the inside will oh, start to okay. seep into it and deteriorate the cork. Here's my pet peeve. You ever open a bottle of wine and have the cork just fall apart on you? Yep. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and there's another problem with cork, and that's probably that shows that signs of a bottle not being stored properly. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. So, so if you store a bottle of wine with the cork straight up and down all the time, especially in a warm place like in your kitchen, most people keep wines in their kitchen, but if you store it straight up and down, which a lot of stores do, that's the problem. Problem with a lot of you know, especially grocery stores, the wines are all stored straight up. Right. And unless they rotate through those wines fairly quickly. You know, who knows how long those have been sitting there. And wine corks dry out over time. The only way to keep them from not drying out is they have to be laid down on their side. Hmm. You know, it's like when we ship them, we usually, when I store wines using cork, we had to store them upside down in the box. You know, that's why you find usually a lot of times if you buy a case of wine and you open it up and you go, huh, okay, the bottles are all upside down. Well, they're keeping the cork wet Hmm. so that it doesn't dry out. Um, As long as you keep it from drying out, the wine, that 
that cork barrier should last a long, long time. Hmm. It's it's sort of the inverse of proper record storage. <laughs> you, you don't want to lay them down. You want to stand them up. But with right. wine, you want to lay it down. Lay it down on its side or upside right. down in the box. And right. then you want it someplace cool, too, and dark and as vibration-free as you can, too. There's a whole bunch of criteria for storing, if you want long-term storage of wines. Hmm. But, you know, I think most... Nicely designed, especially more expensive red wines these days. Are, you know, they're designed, they show their best probably five to ten years after the vintage on the bottle. That's when they're probably going to drink their best, somewhere in that time frame. Hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't age a lot of wines like that. I'm kind of a more, you know, drive, buy a few things. I have a few things in my little collection of wines, but I'm usually drinking them way more before that. Because I, I like the fruitiness that, that, that's in the younger wines. Then as they age, you lose that fruitiness and more of these secondary notes come out, like the oak, the, oak the, the spices that the oak bring to it. They call those tertiary or secondary notes that come out in wines. So I, I like like an old, you know, Cabernet. I like I like a younger Cabernet than an older Cabernet per se. You know, ten years or younger is good for me instead of ten years or older in most wines that I found. I've had some incredible wines that have been even white wines. Some of the best white wines I've had have been ten to twenty years old that I've tasted in my life. You know, they're phenomenal. Once you open them, though, they don't last. You've got to drink that bottle within you know a few hours basically because they oxidize. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, because all their protective, uh, the protectiveness of the sulfites that we put in there to preserve them. That's what we use sulfites for in wines is to give them some shelf life and to keep any kind of maybe microbial thing taking over within the bottle. But it's the only preservative we're allowed to use in wines. <laughs> and we use really low, the low, low parts per million to do that with. But they bind over time. <laughs> so... Is there anywhere in this area somewhere where you could learn to become a som or, or sommelier, I guess? Is that how you pronounce sommelier? it? Um, I don't believe there's any training here in this area. I, you have to go to bigger cities because usually you have to find a mentor that's, uh, you know, within that kind of a, a doing that, with working with some program for that. Mm-hmm. Um not to say you couldn't do some kind of you know online thing. I don't I don't know of any online courses for that because yeah, I think you eventually have to go be trained Try to do it. that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there's different levels of it. You can become a Psalm one, Psalm two, Psalm three, all the way up to master Psalms. Um, and that's that's a food and beverage thing. You know, those are people that were here in this country. They kind of get put on pedestals, I believe, and right. made you know like rock stars. Um, whereas in Europe, they're more average. They're they're part of the food and beverage. They're usually the food and beverage director uh, of of a restaurant, you know, or a resort or something. They're mm-hmm. the ones in charge of making sure all the right, you know, we have all the right mixers and spirits and wines and beer and you know everything's there that to offer people a food and beverage experience. Um, whereas you know they're just kind of working class joes over in europe more so than than here they right they kind of made big things here which yeah. which is okay i mean they have a place but um, you know there's different areas you go like i'm a i have a, a the wine spirits education trust is a british firm that puts out a kind of a similar degree but we come at it from a more ma- ma- academic uh, uh, attitude about it all. Uh, ours is all more about, you know, just learning about the regions of the world. I'm a Wesset level three. You can go all the way up to, I don't know, four or five or six, I think with the Wesset. I'm, I'm not going to go any further with mine. I just did it because it was offered through our, through our college. We offered it to people. Um, and that lady had to travel all the way from Portland to be able to offer these classes for us. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. I think the closest thing here is WSU's program. 
Yeah, and I'm not sure if they offer a song. I don't know if they do small, but that's yeah. going to be your closest wine educational route, I think. Yeah, here. I, I mean, yeah, let's see. I think, uh, I think, I believe Ellensburg, the college in Ellensburg, offers uh, um, a, a program. They have a, a wine tourism program. They call it. And so you can go through that program, and you could you could be you know do basic wine instruction and all that through it. A lot of it comes down to you just want to basically teach people more about the beverage that you're serving them. Right, that's what that comes down to. Helping people make yeah. choices, you well, know, if they want to. I know you could find a like a psalm at a restaurant more mm-hmm. commonly on the west side, but yeah, in like. I know we have like some James Beard restaurants in Spokane, Walla Walla, around mm-hmm. those areas. Could you find somebody that works as a SOM in those areas, or is it still pretty uncommon there as well? Oh, no. They have a pretty good uh, food and wine scene in Spokane. Yeah. And I've met a few people up there that, you know, most people are most, – most managers in restaurants, especially if they're in charge of the food and beverage program, uh, they're probably at least a level one SOM. Hmm. It's pretty e- easy to achieve level one or two. Or like with me, Wesset 3 isn't hard to get to. And you could use that same Wesset degree to do what they do. Um, well, it's just it's, it's about knowing the basics of food and wine. Yeah, pairing, it sounds basically. like it's all connected. If you're going to uh-huh. be a sommelier, chances are, or it's probably very helpful for you to also know food. Mm-hmm. Does it seems like be that's what useless. you're in charge of? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> useless to know wines without knowing the foods that yeah. they would go with. Yeah. Right. Um, do you have any aspirations of opening up a processing facility near the valley or kind of near where you're at here? Or are you just plan on staying in Yakima for the foreseeable future? No, my plans were, were to eventually put a – I'd like to put a, a small custom processing facility over here in the valley to help encourage more people to grow grapes over here. Or people growing grapes, maybe they'd like a place to process their, their, their product for them and have them have some commercial level wine made for them through that. So I'm working currently on finding a building first. And then I've got some folks that sell the, uh, that want to help me write some grants because you can get money for grant money for equipment. And, um, but I have, I have to secure a place first and then I'll move my whole, everything over here. Currently I'm at the college. It's a, it's still a good place for me to make everything. Cause it's, it's kind of, I have this one lease price I pay and I get all the equipment I need to be able to do what I'm doing. Plus still help other people do what I'm doing because I do custom work for other people there. I, I do several custom small projects through what I'm doing at the, there at the college as well as help with the students there with their college wines. Um, but yeah, my whole ultimate goal is to pull everything over here, not travel so much over there, find all my source, all my grapes from here in the valley. I've got some big ideas on what will really work well here. Um, and it's just finding people that want to do that stuff here you know want to take a chance on growing grapes here we have a couple of challenges here we don't face in the yakima valley so um it's just getting people to take that risk with farming well and i know here locally through some other endeavors that i've been a part of there's a lc valley wine alliance Mm -hmm. would something like that be beneficial in that that venture and then are is prey house a part of the lc valley wine alliance uh yeah prey house they let us in i'm a basically i'm a be like an adjunct tasting room, basically. You know, I'm not a member per se of the Wine Alliance as a member being a, a, a wine, you know, a grower and or winery. So I'm not a member like that. I'm more of they, they but they, 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 they have been very kind to me and allowed me to be a part of this valley because um, they know I'm here to promote everybody. You know, I didn't come here to, uh, to do anything 
extraordinary. I'm just, I love what I do. I love the whole processing of wine. I'm hoping to elevate the, the valley through my efforts to find the right grapes to grow here. You know, I think we're what, who's growing grapes here right now are doing a great job with what they're working with. Um, I think finding some signature grape varietals uh, for this valley would be very helpful. I think Albarino has a lot of potential here. I also think, though, a few other whites have potential here. We need to grow them in the right spots here. Uh, the Lewis Clarkston itself down here in the Lewis Clarkston township and the heights and whatnot up here. Um, I mean, we can grow. It's more. It's warmer here than as you go out to other areas. I'd like to see some whites growing up to Clearwater, up toward Dorofino. I think there's some white grape species that would do outstanding here um, because it's a little cooler, especially at nighttime there. It cools down at night there, which helps you retain natural acidity in, the, in these whites and helps you from having the sugars get too high and having too much alcohol in your end product. Whites are important to keep that alcohol, I think, at 13% or lower. It gives a more balanced, mm. refreshing wine than as you get higher in whites. You know, you get over 14% in the white wine, that's pretty heavy. Mm. Well, you guys are pretty involved uh, in the community as far as you have you have a lot of events that get people in mm-hmm. to the winery, and, mm-hmm. and you have a lot of music events. I play there. You guys have me. That's great. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I love having you there. So what? <laughs> thank you. So what kind of events do you guys do i know of a handful but why don't you kind of give us the rundown sure um when we first set up the tasting room we wanted it to be uh, a place for the community to come um so we do different art classes there they're usually on saturday afternoons we do have an artist that comes down uh, once a month from uh, kuski she's a, a painter um, she does a wonderful painting classes at our place um recently we've had been uh, doing a collaborative thing with art uncorked from downtown Lewiston. They've uh, been coming over and doing some, uh, we've done some, um, uh, was it, uh, wine glasses. They've been painting on wine glasses. We did that through the holiday season. Um, we offer various workshops. Rebecca sets up a lot of different things like that through on, especially on Saturdays for our place. Uh, we like to do fundraisers. We collaborate to raise money for the Lewis Clark Valley Animal Shelter a lot. So we've done multiple fundraisers for that. Um, we have a, we started a wine club here. This, so this is actually officially my first tasting room that I've ever had, the one here. So, and it's been wonderful. The, it's exceeded all expectations that I thought that I could have even have imagined for, for what it's done so far. It's been a beautiful thing. Can't thank the community enough for, for coming in because we don't have a lot of tourism here. So it's been pretty much community support to our place. And we really enjoy that. Um, the music, I've always wanted a tasting room where I could offer music. I love good music. Um, so our space is small. It's pretty much designed more for acoustic style music. So, but we're trying to support all our local artists that we can. We have them all in at, at least once a month. And you have a neat, re- you have a really big record collection and you do those events with, uh, Gregory where bring your own vinyl. Yep. Yep. We've doing the, every other month we're doing a bring your own vinyl event with Gregory, Gregory Ray. Um, he comes in with his DJ equipment, spins some vinyl for us, brings a bunch of vinyl. I have a bunch of vinyl. We encourage people to bring their own vinyl. Those, those are always fun. Um, and I think Drew's dead set in bringing his dogs in next time you have a competition. Yeah. Oh, yes. About that. Yes, yeah. And then we have uh, Miss Rebecca came up with this idea, um, again, to make people aware of us in the community and the community aware of us. Um, we, uh, we started our own um, uh, wine club. 
I've never had a wine club before, uh, and everybody has a wine club around here. So um, we started a, 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 a dog competition to go with the wine club. And what we do with this um, is everybody brings their dog in on a Saturday. We take a picture of the dog. The picture goes up on the wall with a number on it. Uh, the following week, everybody has to send their friends and family in to vote for whichever dog they want to vote for. You can vote you know, one, one vote per person per day for your favorite dog. We let that run the whole week. Uh, that following Sunday, at, at the end of uh, the, our, our being open for the week, we tally up the votes and announce the winner on that Sunday. And then that dog gets to be on a limited, I usually do 50 cases or less, of that dog's picture on, on one of our wine club releases. So we've had three, three winners so far. It's been, been really fun. Yeah, and I think we plugged the event for the most recent one. It was Tilly Sue. Tilly Sue, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Very. That's cool. uh, Henry Funk's dog. Oh, really? Yeah, and he cool. also plays there quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. shout yeah. out to Henry. Yeah, yeah. we're yeah. Uh, usually we do events at the beginning of our episodes uh-huh. to kind of you know generate some interest in what's going on around town. Yeah, uh, we're taking a break from that. Obviously, with everything going on with. COVID-19, it would be really interesting to hear from a local business owner how that's been affecting you. Wow. So, yeah, this is the new one. Um, I've seen a lot of things in my 60-plus years of being on the planet, and um, this is the new one for all of America. It's hurting businesses in ways I've never seen anything. I mean, I survived the recession of 2008, and that was good. I didn't think that was too hard at that time compared to what we're up against now. Um, we were recently, of course, we're a Washington winery. Uh, our governor closed us down, what, it's been two weeks now. Has it been two weeks? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, so our uh, we have not been able to utilize our tasting room. And that's a big chunk of our revenue stream is what we what we get through uh, our events we do. I mean, we love doing our events. We love being a part of the community and doing these things. So it has drastically affected our our business and our in our uh, normal normal income stream um you know and i can't sell i'm not doing any wholesale either at this time because the people i wholesale to which are small restaurants uh, are all shut down too shut down too so what have you been doing to kind of overcome that um i fortunately am a hired gun i've been hiring myself out to do some custom work for other people and so there at the college, uh, we have the we have the two incubators built into the program. Um, I've taken on. Uh, they hired me actually back way back in last year. Uh, they lost their winemaker due to he got married and moved away. And I've been babysitting their wines. They have just red wines in barrels, and so I've been taking care of these red wines. And uh, this last month and into this whole month of March, I've been doing custom work for them to get these wines ready for bottling, which we're hopefully going to bottle uh, at the end of the month. Um, we just heard from the bottling. We bring in a mobile bottling line to do this. We just heard from the mobile bottler that it's iffy if he's going to be able to come due to this whole virus issue going on. So it continues to hurt what we're doing. Um, fortunately, the people I've been doing this custom work from have been very kind to me and paying me on a weekly basis. So that's been real helpful that I can do some work like this. Um, and then you guys are doing curbside pickup. So curbside pickup, We yep. can still go get your wine. We just yep. can't go in and hang out and drink it with you. Yeah. Well, yeah. not that, yeah, you drink it inside. <laughs> uh, and then you're doing deliveries. Have you always done deliveries or are you just 
popping no, up on that. No, you know, we haven't really ever had to do that. Even with our wine club, it's all local folks. So we've never had to do any shipping or delivery. We, uh, I've told people I would do delivery if they ever needed something. So ever since we've been open, we said, oh, yeah, you know, you're in, we, we'll deliver locally. You know, um, but we've offered that now recently locally. But uh, fortunately, we've had some of our, our wonderful people that are in our wine club and our regulars have come by and bought some wine because they knew they were going to be hunkering down. Mm-hmm. So uh, today I had one before I got here. I had some people show up that wanted to, you know, got a mixed case of wine. And I've got some people that are going to come by this afternoon and pick up some wine. And we'll just keep offering that while we're here. Um, and hopefully we can all get back to some normalcy. Yeah, with hopefully time. this all blows over. Well, and do you offer gift cards? Is it possible for people to purchase those to oh, yes. use at a later date so oh, they yeah. can help support that way? Mm-hmm. Yep. We've always offered a, a gift card format since you know we came in. Yeah. Uh, we don't do a lot of those because it's something we really, even at the holidays, we really don't push that part of what mm-hmm. we do. But you know, we, we do have that capability to do that for anybody who wants to offer a gift card. Um, we're just trying to do our part <clears throat> for everybody to be safe and, you know, like they say, flatten this bell curve with what's going on. Right. Because this is the most significant, you know, I was in medicine, I was a respiratory therapist and a paramedic before I got into all this, so I monitor medical stuff quite a bit. Um, This is the worst thing I've ever seen in my lifetime of all the medicine I've ever been involved, you know, medical practice I've been involved with. And I did all critical care for my whole career and saw a lot of of things occur. Uh, I was there at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic before it even had the word AIDS or HIV was known. And that was Um, in California, right? In the San Francisco Bay Area, yeah, yeah. I was kind of that was kind of the epicenter for at least here in America for for that whole uh, you know situation that came about. So, um, but yeah, this is the, this is a big one that's affected us all. It's in odd. many many ways, yeah, it's for sure. It's definitely different. Yeah, it's it's scary times, and it's time to be cautious. Even though that we we are isolated in in our little area here and we've been fortunate enough to not be impacted by it Mm -hmm. in terms of the actual spread of the illness so far but it is a time to be cautious and it's time for community it's time to help support our little small businesses any way that we can yeah if there's Um, any good that's going to come of it it's people helping people out absolutely Yeah. yeah well and just to shift things back onto more of a positive gear. Yes. You are an award-winning winemaker. I happened to notice that when I was in. Uh, could you talk about some of those awards that you've won? Oh, yeah. Um, I don't enter a lot of competitions. Um, there's there's a few I enter. There's many, many, many. I get asked to be in competitions all the time. Every, every state has probably multiple wine competitions. Um, so I'm kind of picky about which ones I do. Um, the big one for me that I like to put my wines in is uh, one out of San Francisco. Um, they do a competition every January. Um, this is called the San Francisco Chronicle Wine Competition. And basically, they invite all wines from all of, base, of North America. So people from Canada, all 50 of the United States have wineries. They can enter wines. Uh, we also include uh, any wines uh, that want to come up here from Mexico. Actually, Mexico has a small uh, premium wine scene um, occurring. So, But we don't see their stuff here very often because tariffs and all that stuff to get sure. stuff here. Um, same with Canadian wines. They cost more if they get shipped down here. Um, but anyways, I, I like the San Francisco wine competition. To me, it's uh, a benchmark. I mean, if you win there, I've, I've entered my Albarino ever since. I've been making Albarino now since 2010. And pretty much every year I enter the Albarino, I get you know best to show, best to class. I've gotten out of that one. And to me, you're up against America, and I think that's really good. So yeah. I, I think there's a lot of value in, in, in that um, as far as 
I'm doing something right. You know, I'm making wines that are variety correct. Um, usually, uh, you know, that's, that's what your goal is to make something that's supposed to taste like it's supposed to, um, and puts me up against other people doing the same thing. And, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's the one competition I really believe in. So I don't enter a lot of them because they cost you a lot of money. You know, you know, you have to pay, you have to pay to be in the competition, which is usually sure. at least $50 a wine, each wine you enter. You have to send them at least six bottles usually for these competitions. Oh, wow. You, know, you ship them the wine. They don't buy the wine from you. No. You know. So do you travel out to the competition <clears throat> or they sort of judge it and then remotely say, hey, you won or? Yeah, these, you just send them the wines. Yeah. You know, they give you usually at least three or four month time period to send wines like the San Francisco wine competition, Chronicle Wine Competition, they start advertising, I think, in November of the previous year. And then you have to have all the wines to them by, I think, the end of December. And then they do the competition, what, usually mid-January, and then announce the winners by the end of January. And their one's nice because you get some good PR out of that one. And like I say, it is. You're up against you're up against all of America you know, that are making the same things that you're making. Right. So it's a nice judgment, not just a local one. Uh, occasionally, I'll enter some of the local ones. The competitions are interesting, and it's nice to win those awards. They really don't lead to any more sales in wines, I found, over many, really? many years. Yeah, usually. <laughs> Unless you have a lot of money to promote that stuff. You know, the wine industry is like a lot of things. And if you have a lot of marketing money... You can take that that good news of all those awards and whatnot and channel it out there, and it will probably bring you some revenue stream. Sure. Probably. But you have to work it. You know, it's something you have to work. Just because you win these, people might look at these, oh, yeah, you got, you know. I, I think people pay attention more to, like, if you were, there's two main wine magazines in America, the Wine Enthusiast and the Wine Spectator. If you get a good score in one of those, then they, they use the 100-point scoring system. If you get a 90-plus score in one of those magazines, and, you know, they have quite the distribution. They'll, they'll, that will actually help your sales more than wine competitions will, will help your sales. The wine competitors are nice bragging rights. You know, it's nice. You know, since you get tourists in, you can have all the medals around and not and whatnot. But uh, I found you spend a lot of money. They don't lead to a revenue stream back. Yeah, that's, for, that's for interesting. That. Yeah. yeah, because I, I figured as a, as a consumer and mm -hmm. especially as somebody that's a more educated consumer that knows about wines – that would be a huge selling point. Like, yeah. oh, I've got to try this. This guy won from this really prestigious mm -hmm. uh, wine competition. I've got to go try that. Yeah. Hmm. And a lot of consumers don't know there's so many wine competitions. Like, you yeah. know, you could win a coin. Like, say you won Best of Show at the Texas International Wine Competition. People here in Washington State, Texas International Wine Competition. Why are you entering in Texas? Aren't we here in Washington? <laughs> you know. But there are a lot of nice uh, competitions here. There's, a, there's one in Seattle called the Seattle Wine Awards. That's actually a nice regional one. Uh, for all of Seattle, Oregon, Idaho, that one, uh, a lot of our people around here win, win, win things in that one, the Seattle Wine Awards. Um, there's several local ones that are, that it, people in the know, that people are real, I call them, you know, I'm kind of, I'm fairly wine geeky. But, you know, people that know these competitions pay attention to that. And a lot of the local magazines will advertise in those and push those numbers, you know, oh, yeah, this one, these guys won Best of Show. Or some of them have like a platinum level. And, you know, I mean... Um, it's where how you work it and how you take that information and feed it to your your masses that are following you that I think eventually gets you, you know, that. I just tried to make yummy, affordable Washington wines that go great with food, family, and friends. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you've mentioned the wine club a couple times. Uh -huh. uh, how do you become a part of the wine club? What do you get if you're part of the wine club? Give us a 
Sure. Yeah, yeah, we started. I never had one until I moved here, but then I found uh, everybody here in the Valley had one, and they, so the, all the local wineries have been very encouraging. You know, we all work together. Um, they encouraged me to start a small wine club, so I was like, okay. So I looked at all the demographics of that, um, and I wanted a club that gave – I didn't want to just send people a lot of wine. You know, a lot of wine clubs – that's the one complaint I heard about wine clubs is, gosh, I, I get hammered with 6 to 12 bottles, you know, twice or more a year. Uh, it can add up price-wise. I'm more about the, we started our club to be more about the discount you got after that. So with our club, we have two basic levels. You can buy in at a four-bottle level or an eight-bottle level. And after you pay for those, you know, you just pay for those, like say you're doing the four-bottle club. We call that the pairs. That's the pairs level of our little wine club. Um, that one, you just have to buy, we do wine club releases for our one twice a year. So if you just buy, we do two wines, each wine club release. If you just buy those two wines, each wine club release, you're in our club. And then everything, you get 15% off of everything after that. Hmm. And so that's our little wine club. And we don't make you know, if you don't want to be part of the wine club, that's okay. If you want to be, that's great. If you figure out after a while that doesn't work for you, just financially, that's okay. You know, we're just, we were just trying to offer something that really uh, helped give people more of a, a discount. Yeah, that's really cool. For it all. And I, I don't, I'm not a real high production. I keep my production of wines. I don't want to make a lot of wines. I have a fair amount of wines on my list right now just because that's just the way it worked out with the way I'm processing things. I make wine for a lot of other, you know, several other people. So a lot of grapes come across my radar and a lot of these, sometimes I can get some pretty good deals on these things because I'm rescuing them. You know, I mean, they just, they don't have a home. So I'll play, let's make a deal with a grower and be able to put out some unique things like Sanso. Nobody's ever really heard of Sanso. You know, it's mostly a blender grape from Southern France that we grow here in the States, but it makes a lovely little wine on its own. One of the best things ever with, with grilled salmon you know, you'll hear Pinot Noir mentioned a lot to go with grilled salmon. I think this blows Pinot Noir off the map as far as a wine that goes great with salmon. I think Sanso is much, much better because it's got a little more savory edge to it than most Pinots. Plus, it's a lot more affordable than most Pinot Noirs. Hmm. Are. <laughs> I'm going to try that out. Yeah, yeah Sanso and salmon. <laughs> Very cool. So what what do you see sort of coming down the pike uh, for Parejas? despite the recent events with COVID, uh, do you have any plans for the future that, that you're looking at for Prejas? Um, yep. I want to do, like I said, I want to, like, I want to do more grapes from here. I'm trying mm-hmm. to eventually have uh, more people hopefully grow some uh, grapes for me here. Um, I've, I've owned a small vineyard in my life before. I had an eight-acre vineyard for 10 years, and I found my forte <laughs> is you grow the grapes, and I'll buy them from you, and I'll do my magic instead of myself doing everything. Um, so I want to do, uh, make more wines from here, which I will have a release from here, probably with our summer wine club coming up. I'll have a red that'll come from that little, uh, vineyard out in Lapway. Nice little red blend. Um, and I want to move my processing over here. So I've already started the wheels turning this year. So I'm currently looking for, uh, a building. I need to find, uh, something at least 1500 to 2000 square feet to, for my own processing. Um, I'd like to find something bigger because I'd like some incubators built within this processing. So I'm hopefully going to find a place big enough where I can have like two or three other incubator spaces built in, which an incubator space is like we at the college. We have two incubators built into the college program. And they're just chain linked off areas that are designated to be your winery. Legally, that's your winery. So within the school winery, my winery exists within the school winery boundaries. But within my chain linked area... According to my federal government bond, that's Prairie Haas Cellars is in there. So I'm hoping to have this custom processing facility 
least we're on our way to putting it all together. I don't know if I'll have it up and running by harvest this year. I don't think so with the way things are going on right now with the whole COVID-19. I'm pretty sure that won't happen. Um, and But that's my goal is hopefully by at least after this year be doing everything here. Hmm. And I hopefully once I get that in place, I'm going to offer some more educational things to just consumers as well as local, even if there's home winemakers, you know, I can offer any kind of guidance to them. I've already done that to people that have approached me. Yeah, you just give me a call. If you want me to do any manual labor, well, that's going to cost you a little money. But uh, <laughs> as far as words of wisdom, I can throw out my two cents, you know. But nice. um, I think there's a lot of potential for grapes here, and it's just nobody has a place to go with them. So that's mm-hmm. why you only see a lot of smaller home patches around here of grapes. And I've had a lot of home winemakers approach me and go, you know, I've got a couple hundred vines could you utilize this? And it's like, probably could. That's not going to really make me enough. You know, I need I need at least a half an acre of of, of of a single variety to really make something commercially viable out of it. You know, it helps me keep my cost down on it and helps us put something out that's worth you know, off that off that half an acre. I could make a couple hundred cases of wine. You know? hmm. And, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to growing grape species here that aren't mainstream. I like that idea, too, because I I think you mentioned one time when I was in there that a lot of the wines we drink, Mm -hmm. I mean, kind of influenced on, like, uh, uh, movies, TV, magazines, just national trends. Mm -hmm. And it's not, there's so much more out there. Oh, yeah. And you can really find a wine. Maybe if you don't like the four that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. maybe there's a wine out there that you actually kind of do like, but you don't know about. Right. Yeah. Well, so that might that's help to neat. determine a signature, like you said, for this region as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Something yeah. that grows well and people enjoy. Yeah. And there's several things that grow well here. Okay. But, but they're, you know, they're, they're like Cabin Merlot. We, there's Cabin Merlot that's been grown here for quite a while. You'll find some older patches here in this valley network of grapes that are being grown. But those are so mainstream. There's so many other flavors out there. You know, it's like food. There's so many variations of food out there. You know, um, and so like things like Syrah and Tempranillo, people love those too. They're just not as grown as much here. You know, I've just recently mm-hmm. introduced like Sanso. People here have wondered, have really liked the Sanso I brought. You know, Albarino, I've turned heads with Albarino. That's one I've helped put on the map for Washington State overall. And I think that grape has great potential here. You know, and there's some yeah. other grapes I'd love to see people, tr- we, for us to try here that I think would grow really well. Reds and whites. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it seems like having different varieties also would add more opportunities economically for people to succeed by growing a diversity of things mm-hmm. instead of just three or four different types. Yeah. yeah. There's already too much cab grown. I mean, you know, they say that's another thing going on in the world right now um, because of our, 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 our advances in agriculture, being able to grow things. They are growing grapes in more and more places that they didn't think they could before. Global warming has helped with some of that. Um, but a lot of it is just, you know, if you find the right grapes, people are growing or you know, planting and growing grapes in a lot more areas than ever before. So there's a great glut of grapes on the market. They say in Washington state alone right now, there's, we could pull out 5,000 acres of Cabernet Sauvignon and that would be good. I mean, <laughs> wow. I had a friend, I had a friend last year, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of the big wineries, uh, like St. Michelle last year, you know, they dropped a lot of contracted growers they had. Uh, I have a friend who has 60 acres of grapes. He suddenly got told last year, we don't need your 60 acres of grapes. 
He had no home to go to. Oh, he no. sold hardly any of those 60 acres of grapes. It was hard to find a home mm. for those. So there's a lot of growers out there that if you're planting grapes without a home, that's not a good idea of investment of money right now. Yeah. But well, some of these smaller species we're growing, these alternative species would be nice for people to try around here. Half an acre of this or that. And that has more value. You know, that, right. as a grower, I would pay you for that unique grape you're growing more than I'm going to pay you for some Cabernet or Merlot. That Definitely. you have back stock of or – Yeah. 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 Or yeah. there's just enough – like I said, there's enough Cab and Merlot growing around here right now that unless you have a really unique site or that's something you really just want to focus on and have a, an, your own estate vineyard of it, go for it. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but there's enough of it already being grown and very, very well grown that we don't probably need many more of that. I'd yeah. rather see more Syrah – Tempranillo, Mavedre, Albarino. Yeah, we need people to embrace these very uh, different varieties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think it would be cool to, again, have something that's special for us, that's more unique to our area. If if we were able to bring something off the ground that's, mm-hmm. that's uncommon, it would be cool to have that associated with our region. Yeah, that would be yeah. really neat. And you've been in our region now for a few years. Yep. What are some of the things that you've enjoyed about this area? Um, well, what were I'm... you expecting when you moved up here, first <laughs> off? And then what have you found? Well, I was expecting a, 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 you know, a less uh, hustled and bustled lifestyle, which definitely after moving from West Seattle to here is definitely I've loved the pace of here. You know, the slowing down the pace has been very nice. I love the outdoors. This is a unique area that I never got to really explore. I mean, I love what we can do with grapes here, but oh my gosh, the, the whole Hell's Canyon uh, area is beautiful. Um, you know, going up Highway 12, going towards, you know, Missoula, that's just so beautiful when you get up into all those pine trees and you know, I love the outdoors, so um, I think that is is unique and, and and wonderful here is being be able to be a part of the outdoors and but not too far away. Like if you really want the big city experience, you can drive up to Spokane. There's lots of beautiful places to eat up there, entertainment. Um, I mean, we get some nice. I mean, and there's great local entertainment here too. I found the music scene here. I'm really wonderful how much the local. There's such great local talent here, just music wise, that we can go to listen to at a lot of different venues. You know, I hope to expand that part of Parejas. I want to have. I'd love to have music every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. You know, and you know we're only doing two-hour sessions, maybe three hours sometimes at our place. But it'd be it'd be wonderful to expand that whole thing and get more. You know, get get more diversity and and, and more music scene going on here. What are some of the other uh, venues around here that you've been enjoying? Some of the restaurants or bars or. Um, places to go be entertained for musicians what are some of the um well myself my, my own my own venue has been a wonderful for music oh, of course uh, just, yeah. just having that it has yeah yeah, yeah and i've really enjoyed having you there thank well, you for thanks. coming and playing for us and um i haven't experienced a lot of other places here myself just because i've been so busy with getting this up and running oh heck yeah and, and you're driving all over and the driving, place yeah. And yeah yeah it's like a three-hour drive to get to the winery from here you know each way um yeah have a good rest there's a lot of good restaurants around here yeah yeah it's yeah. good food here we have a one of the best across the street from us saute on six incredible food of him that uh, the chef there is doing a great job of bringing uh, you know uh, smaller production uh, trying to work with the best ingredients he can get seasonality seasonality mm-hmm. you know so yeah. I think there's a lot of potential for that, more potential for good eateries here like that. Yeah. Um, it's just getting people to support that. 
You know, uh, when I was in Seattle, it was heavily saturated with small, unique little restaurants, but only so many of them can can keep it going. You know, I mean, the restaurant industry is really tough. There is a very narrow window of of of, of uh, you know profitability in the restaurant industry. It's mm-hmm. usually they use their food and beverage programs to support that food. You know, so the, the more we can support local food. You know, the industry, the better. It's kind of fun to see the food truck scene kind of come along a little more here. Right. We can always use more food trucks, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's one of my goals. I hope hope we get enough of them. I'd like to rotate food trucks being at Parejas, especially on our... our, our, Mm, That's a great idea. You know, on our our, uh, music nights for sure. Mm -hmm. It would be cool to get a a little bit more variety in foods as well, Mm -hmm. something outside of hamburger hot dog. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Well, yeah, there's a lot of really good... Uh, Mexican food trucks. Yeah, there's a the barbecue are delicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I think that there's another one that's a that's a sub food truck down on Fifteenth. Uh, I think. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, I haven't tried that one yet. Right. Um, but yes, more variety would definitely be a good thing. Yeah. 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 For sure. And we touched on this a little earlier. Mm-hmm. You have, like I said, a great record collection at Prejas. You yeah. have a record player in there too, right? If someone yes. went in there and wanted to listen to something, could you hook it up for them? Oh, yeah. It's all hooked up and ready to go. Oh, Anytime somebody wants time. to listen to a record. So, uh, favorite band? We always ask everybody. We this. do. What's, we do. The favorite, favorite band, band, either all time or what have you been enjoying lately? What have I been enjoying lately? Um, well, lately, I've been enjoying a wonderful artist. Her name is Amy Shark. Oh, okay. Um, so Amy Shark has been really. Uh, she I love her. She's an Australian artist, young, younger, probably in her mid twenties. Um, really, really good music. Um, Billie Eilish, I think she's pretty amazing for her age. Um, she, there's some depth to her music that's like, wow, you're only 18 years old. Uh, okay. Um, Do you have a favorite record in your collection? Oh gosh, in my collection. So I'm a huge. Well, okay. Let's go back to the rock and roll days. Let's do it. Uh, I have uh, probably pretty much anything you could ever find from Foghat. Ooh, Foghat. Very cool. Some of the best. You want to hear some great uh, slide lead guitar playing. Lonesome Dave from Fog. I loved Foghat. I thought, I, yeah. And they'll still, they're still playing the casino circuit. You well, know, you'll see them occasionally. Yeah. Growing yeah. up in, in California, I'm sure you had uh, um, access, a lot of great access to music. Yes. Coming up, yeah, especially yeah. the Bay Area. Oh, especially yeah. the Bay Area. The Bay yeah. Area was just a melting pot. Yeah, I mean, it still is. Uh, yeah. I used to go to concerts, and uh, Rebecca and I realized we were going to these concerts at the same time. We just didn't know each other way back in because she grew up in San Leandro, uh, California, and I was living in Pacifica, California, which is on the coast just below San Francisco. But we used to have these, and I don't know if they do them anymore, they called them Days on the Green. And they were done at the Oakland Coliseum. Yeah. Metallica you know? has a very famous uh-huh. concert from there. Yeah. And I saw many groups there. I worked, I went there just as a, I went there just as a, you know, to listen as a consumer. And then later in my medical career, when I was a paramedic, I volunteered. They had a thing called rock medicine. And I, I got to go to so many concerts just using my medical, you know, just That's being so a, cool. a, That's amazing. just being a medic out there in the field, bring, you know, helping people with minor things for the most part. Sure. But I saw a lot of great bands. I mean, Days in the Greens would start at like 11 or noon. And go till like six to eight at night, and yeah. there'd be anywhere from two bands. Like the one time I saw two bands, it was the Who, 
played for two hours. Then open, they opened for the Grateful Dead, who wow. played for four hours after that. That's amazing. <laughs> that would have been a fun day. Yeah, that was quite a day. <laughs> and then sometimes there'd be up to eight bands, you know. And Metallica was there a lot. Metallica played at Days in the Green. Right. You know? But I saw Foghat there. I saw Bad Company. I mean, you know, Foreigner, when, Journey. When did you see The Dead and uh, and The Who? When was that? Oh, my gosh. How long ago was that? That's got to have been 20-plus years ago. Okay. Long time ago. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, long, long time ago was that one. They only ever played there So it was once. even after, like, the touch of gray era of... Of Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I follow and I followed the Dead for a long time. Growing up in the Bay Area, the Dead are you know normal. I saw them play several times for free at different places. Like they just they would just get a generator, set up a stage in the middle of Golden Gate Park, fire it up. One of the best concerts I ever saw in my life was the Dead. And who opened for them at this little free concert and just out in the middle of Golden Gate Park was Santana. Wow. Oh, fun. Yeah. That's amazing. Your early days of Santana. I'm, I'm a recent convert. I, I just got on the bus, so we're <laughs> of the dead. Uh-huh. I'm big into it now. Yeah. Ron yeah. Hallen, who you met uh, last time I was at Parejas, he mm-hmm. plays percussion with me. Yes. Uh, he told me that Santana... And the Doors each played at his high school when he was going to high school oh, in the Bay Area. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So Santana's just playing uh-huh. in his high school. Yeah. Young Santana. Young And the Santana. Doors showed up one time. Yeah, the Doors yeah. would have been a huge one for me. That's yeah. one of my all-time faves. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 And Santana just keeps rocking. Oh, man. He's fantastic. Yeah. I love how he collabs with all these people from yes. these different... That's a sign of just an incredible musician as someone who can go from style to style to style yeah. and mm-hmm. still be yeah. quite impressive. And still, you always know it's Santana when he's playing. Yeah. He's yeah. got a signature. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. definitely a signature guitar style. So were you sure. able to see The Dead, it sounds like, when Jerry Garcia was still alive? Yes. Yep. Very cool. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I've seen Jerry. I've seen Jerry play. He had his own his group, solo, too. Stuff. solo stuff. Yep. I saw Jerry solo. I've seen Bob Weir. Bob Weir had mm-hmm. his own solo work. Um, as when I was a paramedic, actually, one of my medic buddies that I uh, worked with, he uh, was a percussionist. And Mickey Hart, who's the drummer, main drummer for The Dead, I had a, a world percussion band, and my partner played with him. Wow. They, he, he was a bonga player. Wow. So, yeah. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, and I actually have a record signed by... I still have that in my collection. I could show you that record. Oh, uh, One of Mickey Hart's solo world percussion album. And my friend's on there. You look in the back and they, oh, yeah, there he is. <laughs> and he signed close to it. So, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Huh. Good times. The Bay Area brought a lot of good bands to it. You know, a lot of people... A lot of people uh, came to play in the Bay Area, big and small, because there are a lot right. of smaller venues, too. I saw a lot of people. Uh, there was this one small club I used to go to in San Francisco. I mean, they maybe held 7,500 people at the most, this little club. And they'd usually do two shows, a 7 o'clock show and a 10 o'clock show. I saw Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers there. There wasn't enough. Most of the time, there was not enough people to come to the second show, the ten o'clock show. So they just invite everybody from hmm. the seven o'clock show. You want to stay and see it again? So we'd all stay. And yeah, why not? Why not? Yeah, that's pretty yeah. neat. You know, after yeah. doing that Casey's episode and learning about the kind of music that came through this area, mm-hmm. I don't know. It kind of gives me. I'm. I'm maybe a little too optimistic, but. Hey, someone listening, someone interested out there, mm-hmm. why, let's try it again. Why not? Yeah, I still absolutely. think it's possible. It's absolutely possible. Mm-hmm. You're a new business that's come in. We've got all sorts of new businesses coming in. Um, the, we have great people here. Yeah. I mean, we're not very big, but if we could somehow, you know, convince people up from up up the hill, Moscow mm-hmm. and Pullman, to come down, we could get big crowds. All we need is... All we need is the right venue and the right kind of marketing, and we could get some 
big shows going on. In oh yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think I think the whole indie folk scene. You know, my 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 my, my friends uh, that have the place in Prosser, Washington. Who would have thought Prosser, Washington? There's not much there. They have a coffee shop. That's the main. You know, it's called Brumanetti's. Is the name is the name of this place. He gets these national indie, you know, folk rock people in all the time. Well. It'd be fun to diverse some of them. A lot of yeah. them end up going down to Boise from his place. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, why can't we yeah, diverse just, some of that this seriously, way? Seriously, all the travel going north-south. Yeah. Why not just... Or they go to Spokane. Yeah, go to, if you're in Spokane, if you're mm-hmm. going from Seattle to Spokane and then down to California or something, or, or Oregon, Boise, you know, Boise, or come across mm-hmm. from Missoula. There's yeah. no reason we can't be snagging some of these well, people. I've we just, just got to find these venues to you know, right, have them right, play right. in and book them on a that's regular basis. That's the hardest basis. part. That is yeah. the hardest part. Well, I've been surprised just as somebody that's done music and done shows since I was a kid mm-hmm. at how easy it is if you just ask. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, yes. it, it's surprising um, and humbling every time that I ask these bands that would otherwise be playing in a metropolitan area to a lot of people, hey, would you mind coming here and mm-hmm. you know spreading the message of what your band does mm-hmm. to this little town? Usually it's yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's re- it's really cool. It is. I, I, I applaud Hogan's. They bring some pretty good acts in yeah. from uh, other you know bigger places, bigger metropolitan places. Mm-hmm. I think we all could do that to a certain degree. Because some mm-hmm. of these places, some of these bands might, just a couple of them might, like my place, my place is designed for acoustic music for the sure. most part. You know, maybe they'll want to do a little acoustic section at our place. And then later in that night, you could go see the whole band at Hogan's. Oh, that'd you know? be really I mean, neat. we could link all this stuff together. We just have to figure yeah. out how to coordinate this. You know, yeah. I think, you know, I know my friend in uh, Prosser, he probably, you know, helped direct some stuff this way. Yeah. So. And Rod... Uh, again, uh, his son is the drummer for Fruition, the band. They've been they've been getting uh, a lot of attention recently. I think NPR did a tiny a, desk. Ti- no, it wasn't the tiny desk. Was they not? did some just the other day where they held a festival, mm-hmm. right? Because all the festivals are being shut down. And NPR and uh, Fruition, they featured their song. They were one of the headliners. They oh. go down to Red Rock all the time and nice. and do stuff down there. Yeah, and two or three of their members are from. The valley, or at least went to high school, graduated high school from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, a lot of cool stuff coming out of here, and yeah. I can't wait till all this stuff blows over, so I can come in and listen to records and drink <laughs> some of your wine, the Sanso. I'll bring yeah. in some salmon. <laughs> yeah, and again, get hooked up with the wine club. Get hooked up with uh, getting some wine deliveries coming your way, or mm-hmm. buy some gift cards and support Prejas in this time. Yeah, yes. Mark, anything you want to leave us with? Uh, people, be safe out there. We're all going to get through this. Yeah. It's all good. We just have to help each other keep it all going forward. You know, stay safe, keep our distances. Yep. Words of wisdom. We're going to get through this. All right. And I want to thank everybody that's uh, ever been to our place and and, and come by and supported what we do. Um, We literally, I I have not, I have never felt so much love from a community. This has been one of the nicest in my over 30 years of being in the industry. This is one of the nicest places I've ever uh, got to share my products. Uh, share my knowledge. I'm quite a wine geek. I can talk forever about wine um, and just feel the love from the community of people that have m- made our place a part of their lives. We, we miss we miss seeing you folks. Just be yeah. safe out there. All right. Yeah. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, Mark. You guys thanks are Thanks, everyone, it. for listening. Awesome job, guys. Thanks again for listening. It was great to have such a wonderful guest. 
This episode, like all our episodes, is brought to you by our Patreon subscribers. If you want to keep listening to Old Spiral Podcast, do what you're doing. Just keep listening. It's always going to be free. But if you want to support us, head on over to patreon.com slash oldspiralpodcast and help us look more legit by interacting with us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us there at Old Spiral Podcast, too. All right, we'll see you next week, and thanks again. Thank you.